Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. This commandment is a lot longer than what usually ends up on that tablet on your wall at home, right? Or on the public square or, or just off the public square on private property where the Ten Commandments might be allowed, right? We always see, you know, thou shalt not make any graven image. And we see that usually in the, uh, in the, uh, the commandments that we see, but it's actually much longer as Jesse just read. And I think it's important that we stop and give consideration to this commandment because I think it's one we can easily overlook and feel like we do this okay because we don't have statues that we pray to or anything, right? And it's easy for us to feel as though we've, we've got this one under control. Well, let's think about images for a minute, right? We have images and we can see in pictures and stuff like that. We see images sometimes that inspire us, right? Images that prick our public conscience, make us think, right? We see images that move us to compassion, right? This is why we um, do the, the, you know, $30 a month adoptions or people even, uh, you know, go in and adopt children from Africa and stuff. We see pictures like this and we recognize, right, there is a deep longing within humanity, right? There are problems worldwide and images help bring that home to us, right? They move our heart. They're images that bring back vivid memories and shared experiences, right? They grab our attention. And like, even as we've seen these few pictures, right? We can feel our heart go up. We can feel our anxiety go up and come down. And, you know, some images can make us angry, just the very visualization of it and what it all represents. Because none of these images are static, right? There's meaning behind them, every single one of them. And there's context to them, right? Some images bring us to awe at, at what God has allowed us to do and perform and fulfill. But these pictures, they're, they're photographs, right? Everything I've shown you is a moment in time of some kind of shared experience that we have or that people we know have had or that we've been taught in history class. And so there's these images that grabbed a moment, but there's also images that we create, we build, we design, right? God is our creator and we're made in his image. Therefore, we have this desire to create, right? And we build things that have meaning. And these things we build are not neutral, right? We invest time and attention to them. We affix a value and a meaning to them. And they tell a story. They take a stand. They bring up hard questions. And these things also reflect the value of the creator and the interpretation of the person observing it and taking it in. So we think about some images, right? And these have a shared value. And we use these, right? We commemorate something that we stand for, right? France gave this to us, right? And said, you know, send us your humble, you know, masses. And, and it was all about, you know, the, the U.S. being the new world and that people could come and they could find fulfillment, right? They could break the bonds of all the old ways of Europe and come here and start new, right? We create images of um, people that are big in history, right? We memorialize these folks who stand tall in civic life, right? Who, and we use these to teach ourselves history, to pass on values in a shared vision. For example, like this painting, right? And we see uh, our, our founding fathers, but we know that this painting's editorialized. 
right? A scene like this has a collective interpretation, right? We can tell from the Union Jack flags, right? This is this is still the U.S. and the founding fathers, but under British rule, right? They're deliberating over the Declaration of Independence. But you can't tell that just from a picture, right? You need context behind it. I'm using words to explain it. Right? Just a picture alone doesn't tell a full story. And images also call us to action. Think of like propaganda posters, right? Both the Soviets and the US, right? Enlist, young men enlist, serve your country. Images aren't neutral. They don't just sit there. They ask something of us and they reflect us. And so we as Christians want to use images as well. This is a statue of Christ that stands over Buenos Aires. It's a huge, enormous statue. You might not be able to tell exactly, but those are people down there, the dots at the bottom. This thing is huge. It's, it can be seen from all over that city. Fix this. All right. Also, we know from a Christian perspective, right, we've used a lot of imagery within churches, right? Stained glass windows, things like that. This is a Sistine Chapel, right? Michelangelo painted all over and the ceiling and everything. It's very famous, all these different scenes from biblical history, all these different scenes that you can look at and know the story. But again, you have to have context to understand that image, right? It still takes words to explain it. And even some of his images, like if you're going to use them in a sermon, you have to edit them, right? So even, even the images we use as Christians, right, sometimes have some issues. And I think we can all understand that. And so the big question today is, do we worship using images or do we worship using the word of God? And I think biblically, it's very clear, and I'm going to make this case out to you, that we're not to worship God through images, but we're only to worship God through the word, the word of truth. So let's let's go ahead and uh, think about this. One last item here, and I didn't put any pictures up. I actually took them out just wanting to transition away from images. Um, we can think of statues and all the different uh, hubbub that's been about statues in the last 20 years. I think it's Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, right? For many years, there was a group of people in Charlottesville that kept saying, there's, there's this Robert E. Lee statue here, and we want it gone. And they looked and they said, hey, look, Robert E. Lee owned slaves. Robert E. Lee was a traitor to his country and helped divide the union. Why do we walk under this every day? Why do we see this every day? Why do we put this up knowing it's offensive to a lot of people, right? They're making a good point. And then there's a lot of people on the other side that said, Robert E. Lee is part of our shared history, right? We use this to help teach who we were and who we are now, right? This statue is just part of our heritage. And there's some okay arguments on both sides and understanding on both sides. You can kind of see both sides. But then kind of more extreme groups came in. Right. And white supremacists came in and the night before the statue was to come down, they rallied around it and then counter protesters surrounded them. And there were some scuffles and the police had to break everything up. And then the next day, both groups showed up again. One of the white supremacists drove his car through the crowd of counter protesters. He killed one and injured numerous others. And all of this is over a statue. So we like to think of these images as neutral, but they're not neutral right? We all carry some kind of interpretation and some kinds of feelings, sometimes very heavy and emotional feelings around statues. I think it's fair to say that we can understand this commandment better 
and we can know our hearts better when we ponder it. The imagery and creations we create are not neutral. All right. Let's stop and look at this. Before we get into the passage, I want to, I'm going to lay it out like this, right? Do we worship through the image or the word? I say this. We're all visual people, and we're all easily misled by it. So the fact that we are visual people is, is part of how God created us, right? But it's very easy to mislead people because we're visual. And I think we run two big risks when we do this. First of all, we risk worshiping a false god. And second of all, we risk worshiping the true God falsely. So when we think about this, Jason laid out two weeks ago how we will look at the Ten Commandments, right? And there's there's a pattern to them, right? They're not just kind of like ten random rules to live by. Right? There's specificity in the way they build upon each other. So in the first commandment, Jason Jason had mentioned two weeks ago, and then Ryan mentioned last week, right? The first commandment's all about who or what we worship, right? And it says, have no other gods before me. And, and the thing is, is we often put other gods before God, right? It's all about who or what is the object of our worship. And our human hearts want to replace God with our own choice of God. And our own sovereignty means we want to replace him with our own truth, our own images, our own creations, our own interpretations. This second commandment tells us how we worship, right? And he's saying you don't create these graven images and bow down to them. And then in the third commandment, we're going to talk about why we worship. Because even when we worship the true God, Israel still wanted to do it their own way. So even if God tells them, here's how you worship, they still want to editorialize and fashion it in their own in their own way. They want to borrow what from God did and add their own parts to it. So I think we're gonna we're gonna walk through and we're gonna see how we risk worshiping a false god or the true God falsely. So let's let's get into let's get into the commandment here. So it says here in verse four, Exodus 20, verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So that's a pretty definitive statement, right? So when we stop and think about a carved image, right? What is a carved image? It's a physical manifestation created by man to evoke a meaning, right? They're carving out of wood, carving out of stone, casting it out of metal, something that we do, right? This physical thing that I can see and touch, that can look over me as I work, right? And that our a time, our attention, our values go into this, right? The person who creates something adds their values to it, right? They build in their thoughts, their expressions, what they want. And then that person who gets it has to interpret it and puts in their own values. When it says likeness of anything, right? It's all encompassing, right? It says everything in the physical and spiritual world you're not to create these images, right? So it says heaven above. So angels, right? God himself, you're not to make images of it. And the earth beneath, so fruit, animals, plants, we're not to make images of it. And then water under the earth, right? Fish and whales and octopuses and whatever else, not to make images of it. And the thing is, God knows how he created us. And he knows that we're very visual. And he knows that when we see these things, we're going to want to assign value and worship to them. And so he's saying, don't make them. You know, we want a God we touch and see. Our senses are filled with that we can control. 
So you stop and think, okay, well, who would do this, right? Who would make these images and worship them? And back in Israel's time, they referred to it as teraphim, or at least we refer to what they did at the time as teraphim, right? They had these gods, these household idols that people would keep, right? Carved images of different sorts, and they would look over the household, and they would kind of reflect the fears, right, of that household. They would reflect the values of that household, and so it's common in pagan religions, and I think, you know, we can see this, right? People have a Buddhist statue in their garden, right? Or they, you know, our, our friends who are maybe Indian might have a statue of Vishnu, right? The elephant with many arms and all that, right? It's easy to see those things in other people. And back in their times, you think about whether it's, you know, the pagan gods that uh, the people around Israel worshipped. You think like Greek and Roman gods, right? They had Neptune and Poseidon and Artemis and Zeus and all these different things, and they would fashion idols to them. They would fashion images of them. You remember that riot in Ephesus that happens in the book of Acts when Paul was preaching the gospel, and all these artisans who made the statues of Artemis started riot because they were worried about their livelihood? So teraphim are, are actually very common in their time, and very common in our time. You remember Genesis 31, when Jacob was leaving Laban and taking Rachel with him, what did she do? She grabbed up and stole the household gods because she wanted those. She needed those. She felt she had to have those and couldn't leave without them. And she hid them. In Judges 17, that's a time period when it's referred to as everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Micah took silver. He fashioned an idol out of it. And he hired his own personal priest and he thought this was going to please God, right? He wanted to worship God his own way. And people would keep these teraphim for different reasons, right? You might have this one for harvest, and this one's for fertility, so we can have lots of kids, and this one's going to be for success in business. It's a spiritual investment. It's an emotional investment. And it reflected the values of the owner, right? And indicated what they were fearful of, what their concerns were, where their allegiances lie. Stop and think, when people offer to serve this teraphim, right, notice it's not really true service because you choose the ones you want, right? Well, I'm a farmer, so I want this one for fertility because I need a lot of sons to work the land, and I want um, this one for my sowing and this one for my harvest and this one for the health of my animals or whatever. But if you're a craftsman in town, you don't need any of those, right? You want the business one, right? You want success. You want relationships. You want all this kind of stuff, right? So even in just choosing the teraphim you would have in your house, right, you're, you're showing who you are, what you care about. And you can serve it on your terms, and you can blame it when things go wrong, right? If things don't work out. He says this in verse 5, he says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So he's saying when you bow down to these and you serve these, right, you're showing reverence and allegiance, seeking approval and favor from them when it really belongs to God, right? He's saying you're giving them everything you should be giving me. Right. And it's a very transactional thought. Right. If I can just worship this statue, if I can feed this statue, if I can serve this statue, if I bow down to this statue, if I pray right to this statue. Right. I'm going to get success. I do X. I get Y. Right. Very transactional. I think I noticed this when I was in uh, Southeast Asia and uh, Buddhists there, they'll have a house in front of their house. And the size of the house in front of your house is indicative of how wealthy you are, right? So getting a bigger and bigger house for 
the house in front of your house is indicative. And every day they will come out and sit meals in those houses for the gods, right? There is modern-day teraphim. God says he's a jealous God, right? When we take our reverence and our seeking approval and stuff out of these objects that are inanimate, right, that have no heartbeat, as Jason was sharing from the psalm, right? There's no heartbeat. There's no breath in them. There's no power in them. They don't speak. They don't do anything. We want to serve them rather than serving the one true God, right? And Israel wanted to serve them rather than the one true God who does care and work who does protect his people and it circumvents the attention deserved for God. So when we serve another God, we're turning our back on Yahweh, right? Turning our back on the Lord, turning our back. And like Ryan said last week, that's like adultery against God, right? Rather than being with the one who truly loves us, we go and chase after the ones that don't and can't. And you think about Baal and Ashtoreth and all these other gods that Israel kept turning to, and God referred to them. He said, Israel is an adulterous nation. And he says this, will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, the consequences of this false worship don't stop with you, right? You're going to lead your kids into that false worship, right? They're going to have to deal with the wreckage of that false worship. And those iniquities are going to keep going for generations, but in verse 6, he says, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's only the true God that can love us and, and protect us and care for us. And keeping God's commandments means worshiping him properly, right? God gives us guidelines about this, right? Part of the Ten Commandments is all about this. No other gods before me, and you shall make no idols or graven images of anything on heaven or earth or under the earth. And Israel is constantly tempted to worship God on their own terms, and I think we are as well. Now, what do we do with this, right? Like, we can take a very legalistic view about images, and some people do, right? Some people feel very strongly that images should never, ever, ever be used, and to some extent, never even be created. And I know uh, I, I worked with a gentleman, and I know there's some different uh, Christian um, branches and stuff that say no pictures, no photographs, no statues, no anything. And even at work, there's times when I'd have to take pictures to document a process, and he would always step out of the picture. I'd always be respectful and let him step out of the picture, but he would step out of the pictures. Like he didn't, he felt it was wrong to have his photograph taken. And so people who have a hard view of this commandment, they'll point to verse four and they'll say, This is a full stop statement. You will create no images, not any likenesses. Now, there's a couple of issues with having such a hardcore legalistic view. I think it ignores some of the things even within this passage, right? Verse 5 gives context to why there's no images, right? When he says you will not bow down to them or worship them. So I think when God is saying create no images, he's specifically talking to worship, I think it serves as a warning for images in general, but is specifically pointing toward worship. Because later on, God's going to give instruction to Moses here in just a few chapters on how to create the tabernacle, right? How to create um, all, all these different things around the tabernacle. And he's going to tell them, use cherubim, carve this, 
right? So God wouldn't say, don't make any, but then here, go ahead and make some, right? If he meant any, and that was it, full stop statement, he wouldn't tell them to go put it in the tabernacle, but he did have images in the tabernacle. Of course, when God tells you to do something, it's right, regardless. In that sense, right? God gave instruction to Moses, so it was right for him to use images in the tabernacle as, as God instructed him. But I think the last thing with the legalistic view, where does it put the sinfulness? Where does the sinfulness get rooted when it says you can't have any image, any picture, anything? Right? It says that that object is what's wrong. That object is the sinful thing. And it ignores the human heart that wants to worship it. Right? That's really where the sinfulness lies, is in the human heart that would worship an object. Right? That would be moved by a picture in a way that doesn't have context. Right? That's the sinfulness. That's the sinful part. And I think if we risk legalism on the one side, we risk having too loose of a view on the other. And I think some people can, can tend toward a loose view, right? And they'll say, well, it's okay to have images to help us worship God. Help me visualize Jesus. Help me visualize what the tabernacle looked like. Help me visualize what God looks like. Help me visualize, you know, these stories from the Bible. And, you know, they'll point to the same verses, right? God told Moses to use images, right? God had Moses make a bronze serpent after this, right? In Numbers 21, uh, these, uh, these snakes were, were biting folks, and God had him make this bronze serpent and hold it up that anyone who looked at it would be healed if they were bit by a snake. But here with this loose view, the same heart problem still exists, right? Our sinfulness wants an image, right? We're visually driven, and we want a God we see, we touch. And you can see that because what happened to that bronze serpent? Israel later grabs that bronze serpent and begins worshiping it instead of God. And Hezekiah actually destroys it because Israel is worshiping it. So even the image God told them to make got used for wrong purposes, to worship God falsely. And the church has wrestled through this image question all throughout its history. And that's why you see some churches with stained glass windows and some that aren't. It was part of the East-West schism of the church when the Orthodox church was very against using images and the Catholic church was very in favor of using images. It was one of the many things, so a lot more to that story. But what it goes down to is we often want to worship God on our own terms. We want to picture God how we choose to picture God, right? And you, that funny scene in, in the movie where Will Ferrell keeps saying, he keeps praying to little baby Jesus, right? And they keep saying, okay, Jesus grew up right? Jesus wasn't always little baby Jesus, but that's the, that's the one, that's the Jesus I like, right? That's the Jesus I want to pray to. And that's the thing. The church has wrestled this throughout history. I think we really feel like it's easy to recognize the false God, right? The teraphim, right? A carved idol, Right, I think for years, a lot of us drove up and down 75 to Cincinnati, and we saw Big Butter Jesus out front of uh, the church down by Trader's World. And we always kind of looked at it and like, I don't know if that's the right thing to have out there, right? And then lightning struck it and burned it down, and we're like, okay, confirmed. And then they build a bigger one, okay? Right, and we feel like it's easy to see this false god. It's easy to recognize it. I would argue it's not. And I want to I go into Romans, and Jason kind of touched on this during the liturgy, 
might be a little small to read if you wanted to turn to Romans 1. Paul's talking about this, and he's, you know, we humans are programmed to worship. Paul says this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Right, Our futile thinking will lead us to worship creatures and mortal man, right? Not all false gods are exactly like a teraphim, a little carved thing that you sit and look at and meditate upon. When we stop and rest on this thought, right? There's mental images we have. There's reputational things that we have around the people that we know and, and see on television or vote for. We stop and think about this mortal man. I remember... Um, back during an election cycle years ago, and one of the candidates was described as being the perfect blank canvas, like a mirror that everyone could see themselves in, right? And as this candidate was held up, it was it was this thing that, you know, if you uh, were frustrated with the economy, right, you could see your point of view out of this candidate. If you were struggling with race or you're struggling with education, you're struggling with inequality, like this candidate said all the right things and did all the right things that you could see yourself in them, right? And they had built up this image around the candidate that ended up giving a lot of people comfort, right? And even though that candidate could say the complete opposite things to what you felt, you could still feel like he said it in a way that he understood you. And they, they put that up as a feature, right? And I kept kind of seeing that as a bug, thinking like, okay, we don't really know who this is or who this person or what this person stands for. But this happens a lot in politics. When we stop and say worshiping mortal man or celebrities, right? Who do we give our allegiance and attention to? We'll put a sign in our yard, right? We'll put up a poster on our wall. We'll defend them with great vigor, even when we know they've done something wrong. We actually have a TV show called American Idol, right? I think we need to check our own hearts because this isn't just about a little statue, but about the images we create even in our own mind around God and around people and around the things that we like and care about. Where is it we bow down and serve, even in small ways? Mortal man or creatures, or idols, or images. We run that, that risk of having a false god, right? Worshiping and giving allegiance to something that is not our one true god. I think we can also run this risk of worshiping the true god falsely. Okay, God the Father, and Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's kind of talk about the Trinity here. right? God the Father... And the Holy Spirit don't have physical bodies. They're spirit, right? John 4, 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
even Christian books will somehow have this image on the front of, of kind of, you know, old grandpa God, right, with the white beard and the long hair and in the robe, and, and they present that as God the Father. Right? There's no physical description in the Bible of Jesus other than we know he had, you know, hands and feet, right? We know he walked, he got hungry, right? We assume, you know, we assume what he looked like. You'll see a lot of folks, right? And they'll kind of even have an argument, you know, Jesus was black or Jesus was Jewish or Jesus looked Caucasian or whatever. And there's even arguments all around this, but we don't really have a physical description of Jesus. So all those images we see of Jesus are an assumption, Right? We assume olive skin and dark hair, right? We assume sort of that Jewish uh, type bearing, but it's an assumption. We don't have physical descriptions here. So any attempt we make is editorialized. Colossians 1 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God our Father, as we saw there in Romans, has remained invisible for a reason. So any image we set up, statue, painting, picture, movie, you know, any of those things that we set up physically actually obscures God's glory because at best we're only grabbing on to one little part of truth or one little aspect of God at the expense of all the others. So think about this. We can only convey a small part of God's nature through images at the expense of his complete nature. And therefore what we're doing is we're actually underwriting like we're we're um what's the word i'm looking for we're understating the truth about god we're putting him in our box that fits our kind of limited understanding so at best we grab one aspect of god and we can showcase that and we miss all the rest but at worst we can actually put up a false image of our god a false image that distracts us a false image that misleads us, a false image that can't describe his true nature and his true glory. And if we're creating an image, aren't we, aren't we creating something that reflects us? Our desired image of God? Our limited understanding of God? I think sometimes that can end up being its own teraphim, right? It can end up being our, a, a false God in and of itself right? And we're making that circle. We might think we're not, you know, we're avoiding a false God, yet when we worship the true God falsely, we're back to a false God. I'm going to nerd out again, because that's what I do in a sermon. I'm going to ask you to think about a message and a medium, all right? And so this, you know, this kind of thing got put together by a, a guy named Marshall McLuhan back in the 60s. He actually had this as a big section of one of his books called The Message and the Medium. And he was kind of a, a critiquing the nature of communication and how communication happens, right? You have a message, right? The point you want to get across. And then you have the medium, right? And the medium is you're, you're writing a book, right? Or you're doing a magazine article or a newspaper article or a television show or a movie. And he's saying each medium has a lot of limitations around it. And that's why the messages that come through it tend to be of a certain nature, Right. So when we think about it in his day, right, he's saying you've got like, you've got a book, right, which you can make a thousand pages long, and you can get far more information in that than you can get in a magazine article or a newspaper article or a television show. 
right? His point is like these mediums actually kind of have a certain channel depth that you can get a message through. Now he's writing this in 1960, right? And then Neil Postman leapfrogged off this in the 80s to kind of critique television and sort of the vapid nature of television that can't get information across. And neither of them lived to see the internet. <laughs> so stop and think, why is Instagram versus say Facebook versus say the New York Times versus say NBC or ESPN, why do they each carry sort of different kinds of messages, right? The channel is designed for a certain depth of message. So something that Marshall McLuhan noted through his studies was that visual images are the lowest form of transmitting accurate information. The lowest form of transmitting accurate information. And this is because images are super powerful. They're emotionally charged. And when we see them, we make assumptions. And they lack all the context around it. There's no explanation with it. And so our mind can just go anywhere. And it's also a lazy communication, right? To see images, to watch a television show, it doesn't take a lot of effort. That's why we do that when we say, I just want to veg on the couch, right? What do we do? We put on the television. It doesn't take a lot of effort. And we say a picture's worth a thousand words, but the big question McLuhan had is, how accurate are those words? Are they really telling the truth? Are they really being honest? Or is it misleading? Think about it when you've read this large novel that you love and then they make a movie out of it, right? And you leave the movie disappointed because you're like, okay, they cut that character completely, right? They changed the storyline here. They compressed all this. They didn't have the depth, you know, and, and you leave disappointed, right? It can't. The medium of a movie cannot get across the message of the book, right? It just can't. That medium is limited. And we crave that low information route, Right? Images entertain us and they don't challenge us. They're easier to take in. They're kind of like the junk food of information, right? It might kind of satisfy us for a while, but over time it wears us down and it's not healthy. Mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, it's like junk food. There's not a lot of nourishment in images. And it's not a coincidence that fast food relies heav heavily on image-based communication. Now the written word is more like the vegetables, right? It's nutritious, it can be nutritious, it carries a lot of information, but it's a little harder to like it, right? It's a little harder to work through it, it takes time, right? If you're gonna make it delicious, you gotta do a lot to it, right? But the written word is actually the highest form of communication. Written and spoken word is the best way to convey large, deep, contextual, uh, dynamic thoughts. You think about it, you can even think the news, right? A newspaper can get a lot more across than a newscast, right? That's why a newscast can, you know, the, the, the anchor can kind of fix their face and look really sad and say, you know, four people died in this car accident and blah, blah, blah. And they say, and this, and then they're happy in the moment and they go right into, you know, a dog rescue story or something, right? It jumps, it just changes, it's quick, it's fast. It, do, it doesn't carry a lot of depth and context, a newspaper can. So even just in the news, you can see how there's that difference. Now, getting back into uh, how our Lord tells us to worship, I think we have modern issues in the church with teraphim of, of types, right? When you think about a crucifix, right? Our Catholic uh, families, right? They might have a crucifix. 
And when you stop and think about that and you see Jesus on the cross on that crucifix, right? It takes the focus of Jesus, entirely puts it right there on the cross. And it loses all the context of the fact that Jesus was with God at the creation of the world. It loses all the context of Jesus' life being foretold through the prophets of the Old Testament. It ignores the virgin birth. It ignores the miracles. It ignores the teachings. It covers his death on the cross, but it doesn't talk about rising again from the dead on the third day. It doesn't talk about 40 days with his disciples and, and all that time he spent with the disciples that helped open them up to understand the scriptures. It doesn't cover the ascension or sitting at the right hand of God. It doesn't cover his coming again. It's so limited, and it puts it down to one aspect of Christ, and that's it, at the expense of all the others. Now, I think if you look at images of patron saints, right, we're worshiping the created, right? We're saying St. John watches over this and St. Luke watches over that, right? St. Jerome watches over this. It's like we're stopping and worshiping the created instead of the creator who did work through those saints, right? God authored their works that they would walk in them, right? The deification of Mary and the statue in front of the house to say we're Catholic and she watches over the house and keeps us safe and Mary intercedes between us and Jesus. Again, a falsification of scriptural Mary. And we can do this with art, right? Limited and misleading messages. Our mental images can mislead us because we focus on a certain aspect or that, that Jesus we want to worship, right? Little baby Jesus or grown-up Jesus. And so we end up having these false gods because it's a false view of God. God chooses language as his medium, right? And we want the low info, but he's given us the high info. It takes effort, right? The written and spoken word is God's way to communicate to us. In Deuteronomy 4, when Moses reminded them of God coming down the mountain, he said, right, he spoke to you, but he didn't have any form. He reminded them that he spoke his word, right? God chooses to communicate with words. To us, we have the canon of scripture, the words of the prophets and Christ and the apostles. And we have the testimony of those who saw Jesus. Now let's stop and ask ourselves that, right? If we think we need a statue of Jesus to have our focus, there are people who had the one true God, Jesus, right? Jesus in front of them. And they asked for Barabbas to be released. And they said, crucify him, Right? Even his apostle, even the disciples with him, bolted when he was arrested. So if we think a statue is going to bring us closer to Jesus when everyone forsook him at his arrest, it's not. And those people who physically experienced him still rejected him. But those disciples, those apostles, wrote their testimonies down, right? God moved them to write their testimonies and their epistles, their teachings. So John wrote that Christ literally is named the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And later in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And later, John in Revelation 19 said, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God, right? We have the words of Jesus, right? Jesus was crucified for what he said, not what he did. Again, 
the words were what were important. And he said these things, right? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus said, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We're called to trust in the apostles' testimony, right? Luke wrote his testament in Acts to Theophilus so that Theophilus would believe. He wrote it, all right? In John, in John 1, 1 through 4, 1 John 1 through 4, he said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, which was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you, sorry, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Again, we're testifying to what we saw. Testimony is words, right? Trust in the testimony of what those who truly saw Jesus testified to. And the word is central to our faith, right? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Or let the word of Christ dwell with you richly. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God chooses to speak to us through words. So as we round this up, Images at best, at best, give us a small glimpse of God's goodness. And no image can tell of the glory of God. And it reveals to us that carnal desire we have to see and feel and touch and taste, right? We want our five senses satisfied. And God's saying, no, I'm giving you the word. Do the work of understanding the word. Words carry the message of eternal life through preaching and teaching. So our focus should be on study and prayer of the word. And we should feast on the true solid food of the word of God. So when it comes to God and our worship, let's put away the junk food of images and choose the true meal of the word so that we don't risk worshiping a false God or worshiping our one true God falsely. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do thank you, God, that you are merciful to us. And God, though we can be at times adulterous, and Lord, we can be prideful, and we can crave our flesh to be satisfied rather than our heart and our intellect to be satisfied through your word, God, give us forgiveness and mercy. And Lord, we thank you, God, that you give us your word, that you have spent thousands of years preserving your word, that we can hold it in our hands today and have it as disciples and study it. God, teach us to truly reflect upon your word and not the false images that get banded around. Lord, for us to be able to study and richly know and understand your word. God, we pray for our family meal to come, that we can have a great time of fellowship and uh, spending time together. And Lord, we pray that as you send us out this week, help us to see and understand, Lord, your word better. God, give us grace and mercy. 
We thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.